Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. Here we are, Chapter 6, 1999, e-learning. I'm still allowed to host this, Laura Pasquini here. Um, And I'm here with Kelvin Bentley to have a conversation around e-learning. E-learning. Mm-hmm. 1999. Okay, can I ask you, like, how many ways do you know how e-learning is written out there in the world? Oh, geez, yeah. E, well, e-learning is one word, right? You mentioned mm-hmm. e-dash. Mm-hmm. I've seen e... Um, I think you and I had a previous conversation about e-capital-L. Yep. What am I missing? I think that's it. Um, I was looking up just to prepare because I was kind of like this term came about adding E and Martin talks about this in the chapter, adding E to everything became a thing. I guess that's what happened when they added I to everything when the iPhone came out too. Um, But (laughs) he was like a catch all for anything learning delivered electronically. So I say Mm -hmm. this to break it down for anyone listening that's not in educational technology, online learning, Uh, basically anything digital is where it got started. And I Mm -hmm. guess it started around 1999 for Martin, but what was it like for you to think about learning in the electronic ways? Oh, uh, well, I mean, for, for me, when I, when I, uh, well, 1999 brings up a lot of memories, right? It's just, um, you know, it's, uh, I think of Prince, of course. You know, <laughs> That's right. It's kind of weird, right? It's like, hey, I used to listen to Prince when I was in high school and it is now 1999. What, what is that all about? But, um, but yeah, I mean, for me, I, you know, when I first started teaching a lot of, I mean, I relied heavily on, you know, PowerPoint slides and, um, you know, maybe some voiceovers. Um, I, I loved, ancil- you know, digital learning like ancillaries. And so when I, you know, taught my first online courses in 2001, a lot of that, um, a lot of that content came forward um, where I kind of dropped it into Blackboard and then called it my e-learning course. You know, even the school that I worked for uh, two years, you know, in 2001 was uh, the, you know, E was, uh, we had E in front of Northwestern State University. So it's the E campus, right? Or the, or ENSU, where you could, you know, go to find out about online courses and programs. And so, yeah, so, you know, for me, it was almost like it was such a, my my uh, focus was very myopic around digital content, but not but to the exclusion of everything else, like research and theory. And this also 1999 was way before um, you know Maryland Online, you know, even created Quality Matters, right? So mm-hmm. I, I feel like it was still very strongly the Wild Wild West given academic freedom, you know, you could go to 50 different courses at your institution, even within an academic department, and they would be very, very different in terms of how they were structured, how they were maybe facilitated, if they were facilitated. Um, Because I think some faculty treated it as almost kind of like an e-correspondence course Mm -hmm. versus an actual opportunity to do small group, uh, you know, discussion, asynchronous discussion, um, so yeah, so th- those are some of the things that come to mind for me around, uh, around that time. 
it's funny. You aren't the first one to bring up the Wild Wild West. I spoke with Jim Groom uh, between the chapters, episode two, talking mm-hmm. about the web. Like these were early days and people forget yes. it wasn't that long ago. So e-learning could be, like you said, um, asynchronous, drops in a repository. I love that you brought up correspondence, which is the old school distance learning, right? D- distance right. education was mail out a packet, receive maybe... Uh, back in the day, VHS, maybe beta, or mm-hmm. even a CD-ROM, and now they could put them online, and there was no real regulation. So e-learning, um, if people look at it now, could look at how it's synchronous, so it could be facilitated, mm-hmm. or it could be asynchronous, and we're still in this debate right now. So we're recording in the beginning of November of 2020. We're still in a pandemic, despite yeah. people's beliefs, and... This is still a contentious topic of what e-learning is. Yeah, and it, and it's just it's amazing, right? So if we, I'm a big you know um, Doctor Who fan, so if I had my own TARDIS and could go back in time and say, oh, you know, all this crazy shit's going to happen. You know, it's like you know the guy that does uh, The Apprentice, he's going to be our president, and there's going to be a pandemic, and then all these people who thought they could leverage academic freedom not to teach online. Well, guess what? They have to because everything is closed down. Like it's it's just it's amazing now that everyone has to put their their little toe at least in the water, right? Because if if the campus is shut down, what are you going to do if your uh, contract does require you to teach? Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I remember back then in in um, the early two thousands, you know, when I was teaching my first online courses. I mean, we were all just trying to do our best to figure it out. Not everyone taught online, but, you know, we, we had enough folks to pull together and have a fully online degree program in psychology on the undergraduate level. And even for that period of time, it was the only program of its, uh, of its type in the state of Louisiana. This was 2001, but, um, but you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, in some of my, our travels and our conversations, right, you and I, have met some folks who have said, oh, well, in 1996, I remember, you know, teaching my first online course or 97. And that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, again, given the fact that web browsers, you know, there was no YouTube and then web browsers were very um, limited in terms of what they could do. Um, but I really felt like it was more, you know, I'm going to take this content, I'm going to dump it somewhere People are going to maybe log. They're going to log in. They're going to view it. Um, they're going to take their their quizzes and exams. But I didn't really feel, to be honest with you, I didn't really feel a, a super strong connection always in terms of discussion boards. Like I did them, but I think I really could have done them much better. And I think other people were also, um, you know, our students too, because of their various, you know, they're new to online learning and they're also juggling jobs and families. I think at times they felt almost like, yeah, this is kind of awkward and weird. <laughs> so it was kind of difficult at times to really create a sense of community in those uh, early versions of my online courses. Yeah, we're still piecing together and reading through the first few chapters. I think like 
I talked about bulletin board systems, uh, CMC, computer media mm -hmm. communication. These were all still early days. We're still hodgepodge together, like a little puzzle. And E, it's really funny that you say that because I actually went looking up the definition of e-learning. All these e-campuses still have this legacy. So an e-campus mm -hmm. or e-university. And yeah. I think an interesting piece that was brought about in the late 90s, maybe even the early aughts for um, at least universities I saw in Canada and the U.S. at the time, um, they were starting to say, this is a bigger space that we could occupy and scale our learning. And we think about that happening later, but that, this is really the formation. So the quote um, that Noble talks about is the digital diploma mills. They were really concerned about the economic costs and the risk of the student or faculty alienation but when we jump into these e-learning spaces, what will happen and will we um, really be challenging academia and what knowledge is if we put this in electronic format? And the answer is no, but there was lots of concern then that I don't yeah. think has gone away. Do you? No, yeah, that's a great point. I, I don't think it's gone away. I think it's just been simmering. Um, and I think it, it, it never really, we never really come to a, a total resolution on this topic because, again, if faculty have a choice, if not all faculty um, uh, need or are required to teach in an online way, even maybe even blended, right, um, then it, it, it makes it difficult, right? So there are still many naysayers out there because that's just not their day-to-day, -day, right? They are used to, again, you know, maybe, especially at research institutions, especially, right, they are doing their research, maybe teaching a little bit, you know, um, um, but their research allows them to get out of teaching in a certain way. But then you have just the opposite in the community college, right? You, mm -hmm. you have people teaching a 5-5 five, five load, a 6-6 six, six load, some even teaching seven courses um, as part of overloads just to make ends meet. And so they've had to adapt uh, and maybe they've seen online learning for some of them. I think they've seen online learning as a way to, you know, kind of deal with some of the stress of teaching so much. And some do a great job. Some, I think, you know, kind of treat online as kind of this, you know, again, an e-correspondence course, right? Let's just do this work and I'll grade it when I grade it. Um, but I think, uh, but yeah, but I think there's still a lot of fear. I think, you know, there are many faculty who feel like, you know, um, they could just lose their jobs like that. Adjuncts are already being leveraged by many institutions to fill the instructional needs of students. Yeah. And so why not, you know, why not also fear uh, where e-learning is going? Because if I can just hire an adjunct to teach some online courses in place of, of me as a full-time faculty member who teaches, you know, just face-to-face, uh, -face, or maybe I've protected some of my boutique-y like courses, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that is that is a challenge. I mean, I, I like the fact that now with the pandemic, at least in 2020, you know, now there's more of an open conversation because now it's impacted entire institutions. So no one can hide from the reality, which is, again, uh, we, we don't know if we're going to be open or if we're going to be open, how many of our courses will be allowed to be offered face to face. And then faculty, I mean, you know, humans, we're selfish. So many faculty are also saying, you know what, like, I don't like this online thing, but um, I also don't want to get COVID. So I want to stay at home. I want to be protected. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an older faculty member, or I have a, you know, some type of you know, pre-existing condition. So I don't want to expose myself to, to the craziness of the pandemic. So 
it's really upended, I think, a lot of assumptions uh, of faculty uh, who now maybe are like, you know what, maybe I'll do online and, and try it. Um, but I think we still need to do our due diligence, right? So let's, you know, let's put everything on the table. Let's let's do a better job of measuring the quality of that, um, and 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 not make it punitive, but just say, yeah, you know, encourage faculty to share. Okay, what's working really well in your course? What's not working so well? Can we provide exemplars of faculty teaching similar courses both within an institution and also outside of it? so that we can also help faculty grow as instructors in terms of what they do across all modalities, right? Online, face-to-face. -face. Um, and that's a tall order to do uh, when, you know, there's just lots going on right now personally for folks, but we have to get to that point. And so I think of the pandemic now as a way for us to do more of that. I like that you said a couple of things. It's, it's making us, think about pedagogy and this paradigm shift of how it's offered. And in, in this chapter, Martin blatantly calls out, like he's at the open university in the UK and they are embracing mm -hmm. it. Um, and the colleagues from the U S and so I, I'm now a newly freshly minted American. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. own this. The North, we really value face-to-face um, -face experiences and the romanticism of what learning is and isn't and how can it be replicated I will say we're late to the game because like you said it, uh, quality matters is a standards of kind of how we teach and learn online. And when do those standards, when did they form? Do you remember? I want to say the quality matters standards were like early aughts. Okay. Um, maybe like 2003, 2004. Uh, feel free to fact check me. but, but I'll I put it in the notes for our listeners. You know, yeah, because this is saying something that in the UK at the Open University, they were more... Um, interested in the open, flexible online option, whereas a lot of U.S. institutions still to this day push back and we see a high flex, we see multiple modes, we see flipping it around in this pandemic. Um, it looks different, like how learning happens does happen on a campus more traditionally in the U.S. And that's something I've learned and embraced over the last decade or so since I've lived in this country. It it says something where our value comes in when there's um, put into online. How is that not different or how can that not be the same and what kind of pushback are you seeing as you're helping campuses go online well you know i think some of the pushback again is um well i think some faculty are just saying you know i don't really have the time to sure. invest in researching what i need to research to do this work um some faculty for uh, i think you know some companies similar to the ones that i work for are seeing some schools hiring these companies to kind of be their faculty development support, right? To provide maybe one-on-one -on -one or small group support to faculty because their teaching and learning center, A, either doesn't exist because of previous budget cuts, um, or if they do exist, um, very limited staff. And so now, because, you know, now you're kind of scaling that need of faculty who need to you know, teach in these digital learning ways, uh, you know, leveraging digital teaching more, that's where I think, you know, uh, faculty are like, oh, you know, I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed. Um, I think some faculty, again, just for, for just various reasons, don't trust it. Um, they, they, they know what they know in terms of how they teach and the responses they've received traditionally from students. Um, and, and I'm sure some of that has been, you know, I think part of that is perception. I think sometimes faculty think, um, 
you know, all of their students love them and that they're doing a great job, but that's not always the case. And sometimes students are not always, you know, open to, you know, providing that feedback, maybe because of fear of retribution or retaliation, whatever. But I think, um, and I think, again, you know, there's this, there's always that tense dynamic between the faculty and administration, right? Like, oh, you're asking me to do one more thing and I'm already serving all these committees. So I think it's trying to, you know, we need to kind of help our faculty have the space to have these more open, transparent conversations about the pedagogy, about the ed tech we're using, right? There's all these studies that are saying, hey, we're buying up all this stuff, but we're not really doing a great job of evaluating its impact on learning, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do we even know the research on learning uh, science, for example? Like, we, we need to pull those in more. And I think it's just, it's just difficult. I think in some ways, academic freedom, and not to beat up academic freedom to death, but I think in some ways, it's prevented us from really having more of these open and, and, and honest conversations um, about, uh, and, and I think in, in many ways, tinker and promotion policies to create that roadblock. And so what can we do to reshape those, right? Like I, I wanna say it was maybe, there's a University of British Columbia added some language to their tenure promotion. So they didn't destroy it, but they added a clause that says, hey, you know, you can be, um, you can get credit for leveraging OER, right? So in some ways we need to find additives to existing tenure and promotion that allows faculty to be more innovative, to to test out, um, you know, uh, ed tech resources or, you know, pedagogical models that are evolving um, such that um, they buy in early on and see it as a part of their journey as faculty at an institution. Yeah, I think that is right. The incentives for reward, if they could have a creative creation, and some institutions do that for faculty. Um, the other flip side is, I think about the learners. They are used to going to, in America, this campus where they have this community experience right. that's on a campus that has everything from student activities, uh, sports is huge. Like, people associate themselves. Like, I go to meetings and people are like, this is where I went to school. And I'm like, Cool. Like, I don't know where some of these universities and colleges are, uh, but I do now. Like, I, I am a Canadian transplant, but I will say this hasn't mattered in other parts of the world. So maybe that's also the piece of uh, nostalgia. Um, but are we holding on to old things because that's how it's been? Or, and this is the student, the learner themselves, not just the faculty or the staff members that might be coming to campus. Um, so I wonder if it's a combination of uh, all the stakeholders on campus thinking, that's what college or university life is like here in America. And, and some of this our article kind of gives those examples of um, yeah. how we shift our resources or how we give incentives or what we frame as uh, the campus experience or the college experience. I think it looks different than some of our other colleagues around the world that were like, no, I went to school to go to school and that was it and to get my classes and got my degree and things like that. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. I mean, I think we do hold on to the past uh, tradition. Uh, there's some, there's a lot of security there. It's, you know, it's like Schroeder from the Peanuts, his, his uh, security blanket. So, you know, it's, and, and that's where, you know, a lot of the faculty fears come from, right? Um, trusting this new thing called e-learning. I don't know what it's going to be. 
how will it, how will it impact me? Um, of course. Um, so I think you're right about that. I mean, I think in some ways, instead of saying, you know, what what is the college tradition now? We need to be thinking about okay, it's the 21st century, right? So what? How can we evolve? And maybe there are pieces, elements of the of the past that we hold on to. Um, but in some ways, that you know, I, I remember Paul LeBlanc, um, the president at Southern New Hampshire, in a podcast, was kind of just talking about how even at his institution, residential students are going to have over time a very different experience, right? Where you know maybe you stay on campus, but maybe you're taking a slight majority of your classes online, you know. Um, maybe initially or maybe in your junior year as you're, you know, you need that, you need online courses to give you more flexibility to do internships, right? Or right. to have, uh, or to do other projects um, that will help you be successful in the world of work. So even what we think about as the traditional 18 to 21 year old or 22 year old college experience, my hope is that that really changes so that students have that flexibility. Um, and it's not just about being in a classroom and, and, you know, being at the feet of a faculty member that, you know, a faculty member is definitely a piece of that. And those relationships are great. But what about outside of the college or university? What type of life is the student gradually building for him or herself? Um, and how can digital learning assist with that? Right. And maybe not just in terms of the courses, yeah. but it's also about, um, again, maybe even providing um, remediation. So, hey, I took. I know I'll just throw out math because we beat up math a lot. I took algebra back in in uh, freshman year, but I, I need a refresher. You know, maybe maybe I need to um, take a Coursera course um, that uh, helps me kind of refresh some of those skills, right? Before I need to to use them at a higher level uh, in the workforce. Um, so we need to kind of think about how you know a college experience is, needs to be much more fluid much more focused on the lifespan of someone, how universities and colleges are a part of that, but they're not the end-all be-all of that experience. Yeah. Uh, and how can we really help students understand that it's, it's a tapestry of learning experiences, right? And, um, and, and how can we help them plug into those um, as much as possible? I think you're absolutely right. I think the idea of who our learners are um, that new normal, whatever that means in this world right now, normal is not a word even, the new kind of student is a working student. It is a full-time professional, maybe has a family, maybe is a single parent, maybe is a student that's uh, first generation, undocumented. Um, they might have a lot of things going on. Like they're just not coming to campus mm -hmm. like we used to see. Um, yeah, like you said, 18 to 22 year olds, that's not the same student coming to campus anymore and we have yeah. the need to be flexible and this chapter goes from i love that you brought up coursera it goes from talking about e-learning up to the MOOCs in 2012 that we'll talk about mm -hmm. later on this podcast but i will say we've never really thought about updating on how we iterate that we design like the rapid updates in the cycle of online learning is still a challenge and we've never mm -hmm. put the time and investment from 1999 like i was laughing because i proposed a book on online learning research mm -hmm. last year and I, I said 
we're still struggling with this 20 years out and it's 2020 right. and we still don't have yeah. a really good solution on how to support instructional design, support the online student support services, advising career paths, counseling as well. We're still figuring this out. So I guess mm-hmm. it takes time. It's like a marathon. Is this true? You're a runner. You know this. Yeah. And, and so, and so are you, um, a, a trail runner, especially. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it takes time, but you know, my, my concern is that again, time is running out or yeah. at least not running out. Time is being, um, compressed, right? So now that we're in a pandemic, now that state, uh, legislatures are cutting back on aid to colleges and universities in some ways, um, you know, definitely uh, before the pandemic, maybe now with the pandemic, they'll loosen up those purse strings. But I'm, I'm worried about time being compressed, causing a lot of stress. And unfortunately, what's going to happen is that there are un, un, there there will be schools that will respond. I hope that there will be many other than just, you know, the, the usual suspects that respond in a very creative way to really kind of create the next iteration of their institution. Um, I think, you know, boards uh, have a, a role to play having a very heterogeneous board, mm-hmm. uh, lots of, um, you know, new voices to hopefully put some pressure on schools to change up things a bit and to sh- try to change and to your point, do more iterative change, right? Actually collect data, look at it, process it, and then use it to hopefully, you know, course correct, do things in a way that the data suggests you should, you know, go. And so, um, but I think some schools won't. Um, I think in some ways there's some schools that are going to be caught in the headlights of change and will basically fold. And so we need to be prepared for that, um, uh, for that reality as well. Um, Again, I think, you know, public uh, education, even private education is not too big to fail. Um, I think in some ways we've been kind of coasting. And so, it's a great opportunity, even though it's a scary time, it's a great opportunity to your point to figure out, okay, what do, what can we do differently? And let's pull in students more so that they are more the center of that conversation from day one, right? Yeah. They have a voice. They can remind us of what they're up against and we need them to help us chart the course, the, the course forward. If we don't do that well, that's where, again, anything we build or, or think is cool will fall, will fall apart over time. Yeah, I think you going back to the Doctor Who and transporting yourself, um, mm-hmm. Martin talking about, honestly, he talked about the production cost and the economics mm-hmm. of how many students need to go through this. Not all institutions or campuses will be able to do this. And in the coming year, we are going to see some economic fallout like no other. Mm-hmm. So I... I'm wondering about those institutions that are thinking of, to be a bit more agile and to be a bit more, let's mm-hmm. test this out and can we scale our distance education? Because we know there's some high fixed costs. Um, Martin talked about in the chapter, um, but we also know they also have to have a higher volume of students to break even on some of that. And I'm really concerned about what's going to happen the next year or so in higher ed specifically, because some of those models require butts and seats and that's mm-hmm. not the e-learning butts and seats but the physically being on a campus um, because we haven't shifted 
all the other support structures around e-learning. Um, we haven't shifted all the other entities that support a campus mm -hmm. that moves to online. And yeah, I'm afraid of the future. I don't know. Is, is Am I wrong? Is this a, a fear that you have? Or what are some things you're thinking no, about? It, it, it is a fear that I have. Um, I mean, again, I... My, I mean, my, my fear is that there, um, I, again, I worry that not enough schools will do this work well. And, and, but, you know, to sleep at night, I, re I, I think about how maybe not, maybe now in the 21st century, especially given that online learning, uh, you know, you, you can be in North Dakota and taking courses easily online uh, from, you know, from Southern New Hampshire, right? You don't have to to, to get your undergrad or your master's or your PhD or your, your, or your, or even a certificate by being physically in a location these days. And so, you know, so I think there will be enough schools uh, on some level to meet some of the existing need, but the problem that we have too, is that again, the continuing education needs of students. And, and maybe again, we need to just say, we can't be everything to everyone. Maybe some of that continuing education will come from our employers, um, either through, um, you know, learning experiences that they provide or through relationships that they have with other companies um, to provide, you know, education as a benefit. But, um, but to your point, I think there, because online learning for so long has been a, a, um, an add-on, a bolt-on to the existing structures of residential colleges and universities, it's tough to shift that, you know, to, to make it more diverse, to provide services for students that are, you know, um, influenced by technology. So, for example, to your point, why can't we do online tutoring for all students, right? right. Uh, because maybe I, I don't have enough time to come to a tutor face-to-face -face or, or, you know, to what extent will it, would it look like for us to offer online tutoring, face-to-face -face tutoring, supplemental instruction, uh, but again, that comes with dollars. And so how can we actually seed a menu for students in a way that doesn't break the bank? Um, so, so, so schools are going to have to make some tough choices about what that actually looks like tactically as well as strategically um, over time. Yeah, I think institutions that were thinking about this before, my, my last one, the Learning Center did have supplemental instruction, tutoring online, they had mm -hmm. multimodal, and we're going to have to think about offering some of these resources, not just courses, in multiple ways. And I love that you said, and you said this before, I should have brought that out, is we need to think about our relationships to learning and ongoing learning. Like we have more needs to tool up. We had mm -hmm. micro-credentialing being a big issue and partnerships with, uh, I think, a number of companies that are doing it well. Like we knew and we know there's a gap in, I'm thinking about my partner with cybersecurity and his company, Pricewaterhouse, said we're going to partner with Coursera and design curriculum because we don't have enough people to come into cyber sec security and technologies and mm -hmm. forensics on data. We need to tool it up more. So I think okay. there's going to be um, those institutions that should niche well into I'm an undergrad or I'm going to be doing more executive or prepare professional training, like get in your lane, pick it and start <laughs> going forward. I think that's a great suggestion. Um, yeah. And I hope that some people are recognizing that they can't be everything to everyone because I think that um, is going to limit how they can scale mm -hmm. and design and develop really quality e-learning experiences um, for their next generation of learners to come or to come online to their campus. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, there's so many schools that have, you know, they have their undergraduate programs, graduate programs, continuing education, international student. I mean, there's all these different services. And so, you know, again, looking at their data, they're going to have to really kind of decide what do we really do well, right? Like given our mission and given, given uh, our faculty and the, the superstars that we have in terms of instructional design, you know, what do we do well? And then what are the gaps, right? And, and maybe the gaps are, are filled in various ways. Maybe we refer students to, uh, to other institutions, which, you know, institutions don't like to have to do, but maybe we need to do that or, or other resources like MOOCs or, or other uh, opportunities there. Um, but yeah, and, and so that's going to be an interesting exercise for institutions to do. Um, but again, the clock is ticking though. So mm-hmm. how quickly can they do it? And, and maybe again, that conversation requires, again, bringing in a consultant, bringing in someone to, you know, kind of have a level playing field, really, you know, the, the consultant slash psychologist, right? I mean, I think, I mean, my background is in clinical psych. So I think about some of these conversations as almost like group therapy, where everyone kind totally. of brings their hang, their hang ups and concerns and um, their biases. And those things are gradually exposed over time not to make people feel, you know, um, totally uncomfortable, but we want to take some of that uncomfort and say, yeah, why have we done these things this way? And maybe we're not serving uh, all of our students well. Um, So how can we do a better job collectively uh, to help our students? Because if we're not here to help our students, given where they are and where they need to be, then why do we exist, right? It it has to be more student-centered, not about the faculty wanting to teach a certain course for a certain semester. It's about the students. I love that. Um, I'm going to put on my coaching hat and my talk with faculty or designers. I always ask them the how and what they already know. Mm-hmm. What do you already do and what can you do to put online and keep it simple? And right. how will you do that? And how do you want to be most effective? Because I think it's these incremental steps um, I know this chapter was written in 2018, Martin. We are really grateful because some of what you said is very applicable to what we're doing and talking about today. And I know it's a building foundation for the coming chapters that we get into MOOCs and other things like blockchain and AI. But what are some things um, that you either want to ask to Martin or the community um, that they're thinking about now? Like one of mine is what skills are you putting into your own practice or your own toolkit these days to learn more about knowing that we're going to be in this e-learning, remote learning, online learning. It's not just a fad. But this is the question I want to put out to the community. So what are you working on these days, community? And what are you thinking about? Um, what about yourself, Calvin? What question do you want to put out to the listeners? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think your question is a very, very good one. I mean, I think um, I, I asked that question too, like, how are we preparing ourselves for this evolving future, right? Like, so what, what skills should we have? You know, in some ways I feel like I've been always tempted to go back because graduate school was a long time for me. That was 1999 is when I got my doctorate. So sometimes I think about going back and getting a master's, but maybe that's not what I need. Maybe it is, uh, again, a micro-credential. So what, what types of skills do I need to, to have to be successful to you know, help schools evaluate their own data to make strategic and, and, you know, better strategic and tactical decisions. So, so I think, I think your question is a good one. 
you know, another other kind of other things I've been thinking about as well is just like, um, you know, what 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 are people thinking about the future of professional organizations? Um, do you find them still helpful? Um, um, and can is there almost kind of like an un an unconference way to still stay engaged with folks without having to subscribe to all of the different professional <laughs> organizations that are out there because again, money is tied and, and again, with the pandemic causing us to, you know, um, not be able to maybe see each other all the time face to face, how will we chart the future of our own professional development to you, to your point? So I think, I think that's, that's definitely something that I'm, uh, concerned about. And then another one is based on what we talked about. Like, uh, I would love for the community to define for us what conversations are they having now or plan to have soon about what the future of their institution is going to look like, right? Is it, you know, are, is it is it couched under future-proofing or is it, you know, uh, more focused on the pandemic? And so how can we make things better for the pandemic or post-pandemic? So that, that's what I would love to know and, and have that information be very transparent because right now it's very unclear to me what schools are actually planning for other than saying, oh, we're going to be on campus or not in the spring, right, or the summer. Like I want to see the bigger, the bigger plans that, that schools are shaping for themselves. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's the proactive strategy versus the reactive. We're in it now and trying to figure it out. Um, well, E. Kelvin, E. Laura here. Thanks. We've done a good job on this e-learning no, chapter. Thank you. No, it was great talking with you as always. Pleasure. So community, let us know what you're thinking around e-learning. Still relevant. Uh, we'd love to hear what your campus and your folks around your table are talking about these days when it comes to the building blocks of e-learning. Till next time. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.